Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. Oh, it's 2022 and we're back for what I think might be our... 26, 27th year. It's been so long and so much fun, it's hard to recall all the numbers, but here we are. Now, Associate Professor Warwick Teague is the Director of the Trauma Service at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne and the Clinical Lead of the Burns Service there too. A paediatric surgeon, Warwick's work focus is on kids who've suffered burns or other severe trauma. He is an active member of various government bodies and also within the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. And this morning, Warwick will be speaking with us about his work and how it's been affected by COVID. Jessica Windridge is a senior social worker also at the Royal Children's Hospital. <clears throat> She's worked for over a decade in hospital settings, treating children and families who have suffered a significant trauma. Along with her social work colleagues at the Royal Children's Hospital, Jessica has extensive experience of working with parents while their child receives urgent medical care following accident or traumatic injury. Jessica will be joining us in the second half of the show to talk about the psychological and social ramifications she sees every day in her work. Our Radiotherapy Steadfast team members are in the studio today too, although in a virtual Zoomy kind of a way. Dr G-Spot, psychologist, researcher and guaranteed future Nobel Prize recipient will be booming in from Adelaide. Booming in? Booming in from Adelaide. While our very splenic, and if you know her, you'll know what I mean, very splenic, effervescent and immensely qualified nurse EpiPen is somewhere on the Victorian peninsula. It's sure to be a fun show, so stick with me, Dr Mal, and the next and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Morning. Morning, everyone. 2022, whatever it is. Woohoo! The years just fly by, don't they? Whereabouts on the peninsula, eh? Um, I'm down at Moggs Creek, which is near in between Anglesey and Lawn. Oh, so Great right. Ocean Road. Not actually the peninsula, but a beach anyway. What's yeah, the weather like beach. down there? Um, sadly, it's a bit overcast, but we've had the best weather mm. for this week. So we've, it's humid, hot, it's warm every day. It's just been glorious. We're well, looking very healthy there. Um, and I'm very, very, very jealous. Dr. G-Spot, you're... Somewhere else. I am, yes, not on the peninsula there. I'm in Adelaide and I am booming in. And I wanted to say you sounded like a well-oiled machine there, Dr. Mao. You uh, haven't lost it at all since 2021. Uh, you are too kind. Well, exactly. Nothing's changed since 2021. I still can't do a read or push the right buttons. But, you know, after, you know, two decades, I'll hopefully improve it. I think our listeners bit. like us to be familiar and I think we're delivering on that today. There's this thing called magnificent imperfection. It's, um, you know, I remember reading this article that you guys will know. Is it called? 
Kinzu. It's it's the Japanese art of of highlighting imperfections in broken vases with um with gold, and it speaks to how as human beings and nature, nothing's perfect, and it, it it's the it's those imperfections which give give things meaning or uh, individuality and that's my excuse so um <laughs> dr g spot you've had a couple of months to peruse the uh medical and psychological journals tell us some interesting uh, new research absolutely thanks so much dr mal and i wanted to give a shout out to my good friend in adelaide uh peter who's his name uh he alerted me to this awesome uh topic and yeah. i wanted to ask you and nurse EpiPen, where's your favorite place in nature Beach, beach, I beach def- for me. I'd definitely say it's not a holiday unless it, there's a beach and water involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the same. My favourite beach is Henley Beach. We're kind of known for shark attacks, but otherwise it is um, a beautiful place to swim. And I know mm-hmm. Nurse EpiPen's going to talk a bit about that later. And I wanted to ask, how do you feel when you're at the beach? Well, can I tell you a story? Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story, self-revealing. We were, we were down the beach the other day and um, I had to run up to go to the loo, which is at the end of this long car spot. And it was this beautiful day on the beach and, you know, kids were there. My wife was there. It was just blue, sunny skies, people laughing. I thought, oh, God, this is fantastic. Run up to go to the loo. Um, but I hadn't put any um, things on my feet, any thongs or anything. And I thought, oh, gee, the ground's hot. Oh, gee, the ground's hot. And I thought, no, I'm just being a wuss. I'm just being a wuss. Get up there, get back. Think, oh, the ground's up, the ground's up. I get back and my feet are blistered. And for the next five days, I can't walk because of these huge blisters on my feet. So my memory of the beach just recently is painful feet. Watch out. Make sure you put shoes on your feet or thongs or whatever when you go walking on a hot asphalt. It's, it's actually quite dangerous. Thank you, Dr. Mal, for that public service announcement. I was getting the sense, though, but before the blisters, you had really positive associations yeah, Pre-blisters pre was great. And I want to throw it open to Nurse EpiPen, your associations um, with the beach. Uh, the absolute beauty of watching the waves. Mm. It, no wave is the mm. same. And, watch, and being in the sand and having the sand between your toes, but also going to bed at night and hearing the surf. Oh, my gosh. Just beautiful. Mm. Absolutely. So it's like it's what you can see, what you can hear and feel. It's it's multi-sensory. And, and as, uh, as we've evolved over time, um, our ancestors have found these environments in nature to increase our chances of survival because they provide opportunities for reproduction, food and shelter. They are very important for our evolution. And as you've already said, guys, um, our responses to these stimuli are very pleasing. And we found that they can actually decrease our blood pressure, improve our breathing patterns. So it's physiological, it's psychological, the benefits to nature. But I think maybe you found in recent times you haven't been able to go to your favourite places in nature. Maybe you've been stuck in a lockdown or um, in isolation, maybe even with COVID-19, unfortunately. So that's where virtual reality can come in to transport us to our favourite environments when we can't get there physically. And I'd like to shout out to Navjot Bulath for this fantastic research and her colleagues. So in their study, which was in eco-psychology, they allocated participants to um, a virtual reality natural environment and a virtual reality urban environment. 
And what they found was that only the natural environment, the virtual reality experience of it, resulted in higher levels of positive mood and higher psychological well-being. So that's very cool, isn't it? So mm. virtual reality of nature can have some of the same benefits. And you're probably thinking, well, what about compared to the real thing? And would you believe that virtual reality is actually pretty good? It's not as, it doesn't induce as positive impacts as actually being in nature, but virtual reality is up there. And Dr. Mal, I heard you, or I saw you, you put your hand up. Do, I mean, how do they replicate the Bernie Asphalt on the soles of your feet? Yeah, do you know? I think that is that is coming up. I think <laughs> I think virtual reality is still getting there in terms of technology, but um, but I know certainly the sights and sounds mm. they can replicate beautifully, and I think that's why you can get the same impact. What about smell? Because smell is a very uh, mm. powerful uh, evoker You're of right. memories and feelings, and you know when you get that smell of the, the sea breeze, that's also very evocative too. No. It is, Dr. Mallon, and I wanted to sort of link this into our show. So when I do trauma-focused therapy with Mm. my patients, I get them to imagine that they're in their safe place, Mm. and that's inevitably the beach or, or a campsite or a forest. And just as you're saying, I get them to, when they're there, to grab a bit of soil, grab a bit of sand or something like that, put it Mm. in a jar Mm. so that they can smell it during Mm. session as well as imagine and have um, a recording of uh, waves crashing, as Nurse Mm. EpiPen was saying, to recreate that natural space and it automatically reduces their stress and really helps with trauma therapy. Mm. We often forget how powerful... um, individual senses are in creating our space. I mean, like we're so um, caught up on, on vision, you know, um, that we think that that's, uh, that trumps everything else. But you're right, you know, the, the, the smell, the, the taste even of, a, of salty air is really, really, pa- is really, really powerful. Tapping too. into all our senses. And I wanted to encourage our listeners, if you're not able to get to your favourite place in nature, why not try imagining that you're there tapping into all the different mm. senses as we've just discussed? Mm. I'm there now. I just, I can feel just seriously in your shortest, in your short description, I can, I'm, I'm at my favorite beach right now. Now, Nurse EpiPen, you were at your favorite beach, but you weren't relaxed. Well, <laughs> this is another, we've got a, two hints of segues towards Warwick's talking today. So you've talked, spoken about your feet. I wanted to share the experience of being on the beach uh, with my husband and dog, and along comes a quad bike. And we've gone, oh, yeah, radio, danger, danger. But it was from the Fairhaven Surf Life um, Club. Yeah. And the, there was a, a guy coming around, flying down the beach, telling everybody to get off because there'd been a, a shark time. So we all jumped out and left the beach. And, um, and, that, and then I was thinking, I have an experience with going to a shark um, museum and I've always been terrified of sharks. I will continue to be terrified of them, but they're really good fish to have in the ocean. And I wanted to give a plug to the WA Planet Shark Predator Prey Exhibition because it explains how valuable sharks are for filtering all the bottom of the oceans and waterways. And they might be a bit scary, but overall they don't you know, they don't attack people that often. So I've got some statistics. So the most common country in the world where shark attacks occur is in the USA, and then there's us. 
So over an eight-year period from 2012 to 2020, there were um, quite a few attacks. And I've, I've just got the state breakdown. So in New South Wales, there were 62 and 60 deaths. In Queensland, there were 29 and three deaths. In South Australia, there were seven and no deaths. WA, which we probably hear a little mm. bit more of, mm. 40 and nine deaths. True. Victoria, eight, no deaths. Tasmania, two, no deaths. Northern Territory, nothing, nothing. But um, I just, I'm very respectful of sharks and um, if I see a fin, I freak and run into the beach. But um, aren't they're probably sure. not going to get me because I'm already on the beach before they've um, seen me. But um, just that, but that. I have, I do respect them, and I hmm. do think that they're amazing. Well, well I think um, the folks from Radio Marinara are cheering you on here. They were saying, "Yeah, sharks. They um, they serve a purpose in the ecosystem." Coming up, we'll be speaking with Associate Professor Warwick Teague. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Welcome to Associate Professor Warwick Teague. How are you? Good morning, everybody. Now, tell us where you're at, Warwick. Are you at home? Are you down the coast, South Australia? Where? <laughs> no, I... Uh, I'd quite like to be down the coast in South Australia because that's where I often spend my holidays. But today I'm in uh, at home in metropolitan Melbourne, dealing with the realities of an adolescent child who's COVID positive. Oh, jeez. The rest oh, of the family sure. have had to pivot back to the, the wonders of lockdown. Mm. But uh, it is what it is. Um, the rest of us are well. Um, my son who has the COVID is well. So they're good, they're, they're good things. Good. But, so, um, so does that just, mean that uh, you, you're isolating for the next couple of days? Next, what, Yes, yeah. we'll be isolating as a family um, as long as our rats allow us to resume uh, on the sixth day. We'll be isolating for the rest of the week. Right, yeah. So Jane. Um, changes to work, changes to school, but um, we can be grateful for all of us being well. That's a, that's a good thing amongst other difficult times for people. Now, tell us when you yeah. are at work, what sort of, I mean, what's your day-to-day -day like? What sort of patients do you see? So I'm a paediatric surgeon, which means I see uh, children from their youngest moments, from the first days of birth uh, through to heading into adolescence and adult life. Hmm. Probably there's a there's a clustering of kids in the, in the middle there somewhere, the sort of if you... The, the definition of a child being if you close your eyes and think of a child and then open your eyes and look at the person in front of you, if that person fits that bill, they're probably about 11 or 12 or maybe a little younger. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a real mix. And I, I'm a surgeon, so I do a lot of operating and um, outpatients and just generally trying to be a part of a team that cares and makes a difference. Um, so, Warwick, um, how did you get into medicine and surgery in the first place? Oh, it's, a, it's a long but positive story. Um, I was inspired at, at the youngest of ages by a, a father who was a surgeon in the highlands of New Guinea. Wow. And I was exposed to, I think, a really positive and difference-making expression of healthcare, not just from my father, but I think the whole environment was speaking 
to the ways in which we could use our skills and our passions to, to care and to contribute. Um, I think that's true of probably all the people who were working in New Guinea and living in New Guinea at that time um, that I was exposed to. And then that grew from that very naive but sincere interest into a more considered but still sincere interest. And I, I don't think I've ever lost that early days love. Um, and uh, I find myself now a paediatric surgeon and I feel that I have the best job in the world. And I'm so glad that other people disagree with me because they love their work. <laughs> but I go to work very happily and um, even in its most difficult moments, I still um, think that I'm greatly blessed to be a paediatric surgeon and to do the work I do with the people I work with. So you're a trauma and burns surgeon. For people who don't know what that means, could you explain what you actually do sort of at a practical level? So, look, this it's hard to be... Too general, but hmm. most of us are living our lives happily, um, and then along comes a sudden and unexpected moment where all of a sudden your world turns upside down. Hmm. That might be because of something that has happened to you, or something that has happened to someone in your family or close circle. And um, in that moment, a child for me, that it's a child, a child is injured, hmm. and they will be often. Uh, in the context of the, what I'm seeing, thankfully not in the context of all injury, severely injured. Mm. And they'll be brought to the Royal Children's Hospital where um, when I'm wearing a clinical hat, I'll be part of a team which is led by emergency physicians and led by other critical care exponents. And I'll be there as a team member. I'll be there as a member of uh, part of the, the response to that as a surgeon. So I have discrete roles and responsibilities, but following the leadership of an emergency physician, trying to do what we can to understand the needs of that child and the ways in which we can intervene very quickly to help them remain safe and on the road to recovery. And if necessary, that might involve my skills as a surgeon. So that's one aspect and that team will coalesce and then perhaps the child will go through to recovery. Can I just, other times, can I just interrupt a, you there for a second, just yeah. so I can get a picture in my head? So this is a, a child that has been, say, in a motor car accident or has had a fall from a height and, and there would be broken bones and internal damage type of thing. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's yeah. right. So a car crash, mm. we like to avoid the word accident. Crash. It speaks to a different thing, but yep. the word uh, a car crash is a good example of the more, well, not dramatic, it is dramatic, but the, the higher end of severity of what mm. we see. And then there'll be other examples of less injured children mm-hmm. um, and, um, you know, perhaps a, a fall from a horse, a fall mm-hmm. from a bicycle. Mm-hmm. They actually can be very severely injured, mm-hmm. but they're just examples that have been in recent times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in the burn injury space, there's a lot of less, less injured burn children. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, for each of those children, even what we might call a, a lesser burn is still a very big, important moment for that family. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would be measuring in their very large number. We see about 600 of those a year at the hospital. Um, but in amongst that, there are also some very severely burned children. Um, so it's a real mix of severity. Um, of course, for every family, we don't impose our own assessment of severity on them other than to know how badly into their child is because these are all life-redefining, life-changing, life-impacting events and it's our part as a team to really reach out and try and meet all the needs that those children and families have it's a 
demanding, rewarding, um, taxing task, but it's what we uh, have passion to do. Tell me, how long would you spend in the operating theatre? I mean, I know there's no average time, but, you know, has there been like a, a, ma- a maximal amount of time? Do you spend, you know, four, five, six, seven hours if, if somebody comes with in? With a single child, yeah. it very, very much varies, as I'm sure you and everyone yeah. listening appreciates. It varies with the injury involved. But if we, if we for example, just a few years ago, we were um, faced with a, an inordinate spike in the number of severe burns we were seeing mm-hmm. and we were spending routinely four five six seven hours in each episode for for children and some of those children may have accumulated over the course of their time in hospital uh, sort of maybe 30 or 40 hours of operating so um epipen here um warwick what what would be the most common burn accidents or burn injuries that kids that you see in kids the, the, by far and away, the most common burn injury in children is a scald. Uh, so hot water being the most typical, but not the only uh, injury, and these usually occur in the home, um, which is a real challenge for the um, for the the mental state of their parents because mm. they're often in in and around parents at the time that the scald injury occurs. And scalds are a great example of preventable injury. That there are many initiatives out there trying to um, make the difference by preventing the injury even happening. Mm-hmm. Um, we get involved in particular ways once the injury has happened, but we're really keen to be involved in prevention of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really hoping that's where this conversation might get to because it's far more likely to impact the lives of many to prevent an injury ever happening. So scald injury, hot drinks, that's really the, um, the take home for, for children. And these are young children by virtue of their number, not by virtue of how it happens, yeah. Uh, Warwick, I'm loving listening to uh, your fantastic work. I've got two questions, if that's okay, for the panel. The second one is definitely tell us more about prevention strategies. Certainly want to hear about those. And I wonder if my first question might link to that. I wondered if you'd seen any differences in types of injuries as a result of COVID-19 with kids doing homeschooling, maybe being out on their bikes less and in cars less, but potentially, as you said, interacting with hot drinks more. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, we, we did see differences. Um, and the differences are um, it's important to sort of just know where speculation starts and stops. Um, but one interesting thing we saw is that despite the fact that we did see significant reductions in some of the injuries that you've spoken about, for example, road traffic crash injuries with less children in cars, less of us moving around in cars, we saw a reduction in that. That speaks to the ability to change an ecosystem of a, of, a, of a population, of a, of a risk situation and impact the way in which that risk leads to injury. So that's really interesting and important. But we didn't see an overall reduction in the number of severe injuries that came to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Mm. So that meant that other injuries had to be occurring in increased numbers to make up for those that were occurring in decreased numbers. So decrease were road traffic crashes, decrease were sporting-related injuries, thoroughly predictable and explicable, but those speak to the fact that if you can change an ecosystem, you can change the number of injuries. Increased injuries were things such as motorbike, 
bicycle. Mm. What was going on there? We feel that perhaps people were being more adventurous in whatever free time they had or trying to make more of the environment mm -hmm. that they were permitted to use. If you've only got five kilometres radius of usage, what do you do with that? Mm. Perhaps you go cycling more. That's speculation, by the way. Perhaps if you're if you've relocated to a to a more regional setting to spend lockdown amongst a bit more free air, maybe you in, take up a COVID hobby of motorcycle. Again, speculation, but we did see many stories that spoke to that same kind of thinking. Injuries in and around the home did overall increase in that time, but in a way that was really um, complex. So we have to be careful about how much we um, how much we infer from it. And we also have to be careful that no one mistake what I'm saying for an assertion that we shouldn't have stayed home. Stay home, stay safe. That was a central and important public health message. What we needed to, to couple onto that was stay home, stay safe. Far less flippy was this, then to say, but when you're at home, make your home safe. Mm -hmm. And that was the step that perhaps we didn't take. Because we know that homes are amongst the most dangerous environments for our children. That's where the, a, a significant number of, of injuries, whether they're burns or other injuries, occur. And we knew that going into the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We knew that through the pandemic and we know it now. So we all need to make our homes safe pre, during and post-pandemic, even though we're not post-pandemic yet. But we, that always is there. But right now we have to wrestle with the reality that we're staying home to stay safe. To keep staying safe, we have to make our home safe. Really difficult. Um, so, Warwick, I think what you're saying about making homes safe, but where could those tips be delivered? How do parents access information or education about the dangerous areas of their home? Because sometimes it's not intuitive. So... Yeah. A mothers share advice about turning the handles of pots into the stove, you know, cups of tea always. But it's, it might not be intuitive for your first child until you've, you know, experienced being at home with small children. Where, where do parents go for that sort of information? So great resources are available. So KidSafe, uh, they have a presence in each state of Australia. That's a great, um, a great resource and they have lots of super practical, super... Um, sort of relevant resources, videos, um, FAQs, all sorts of things, really speaking to, um, you know, prepared by caregivers, for caregivers type quality of, of um, work. Um, many, many of the large children's hospitals in each of the, each of the states will have um, fact sheets for parents. I know the Royal Children's do. I know the Women's and Children in Adelaide do, Western Australia, Queensland, all, all of these um, uh, services will offer their sort of homegrown variety of advice. You will see great resonance between each and often the same language being used. That's very intentional. Um, and then social media can be a force for great good. It can be a force for confusion and distraction. That's common to almost any social debate and discussion. But there are a lot of really helpful ways in which um, Facebook and other sort of uh, avenues to spread this word and we noticed that in a very positive way. We put out a few um, uh, videos around uh, car restraints or around fire barbecue safety, and we saw very effectively how social media spread that 
um, message. And because of the way that we can use the analytics, we can see that it was reaching the kind of target audience that we would be hoping for it to reach. So there is a lot out there, um, really good stuff. KidSafe is a great beginning. Thank you. We'll put that up on our, our link on the Instagram. Thanks so much, Nurse EpiPen, and great ideas there, Warwick, for us to keep our home safe. I was wondering, like, you see some really traumatic stuff, Warwick. How do you take care of yourself and your team when you're seeing such difficult things day in and day out? Well, that, I mean, the, one of the key words there is team and much more than self. So we, we care for each other and we do need to care for ourselves and, and be present for ourselves and understanding where we're at. But there is a lot of this is dealt with as a team, both you know, in, the, in, in, in the moment and also afterwards if we debrief. Um, in, later you'll be hearing from Jess, one of my colleagues from social work and an integral element of our trauma response to the most severe traumas is to have a social work presence there as part of our team. Um, yes, that's very importantly there for the, um, for the child and the family, but I'm sure that Jess and others do make a very significant contribution to the care of us, us as colleagues as well. They're, they're attuned to our needs. And we have other members of our team who are very experienced and also passionate about the trauma of trauma. Um, it's important to maintain open, open communication possibilities for, for people. There are more formal um, avenues within our hospitals and within any, but a lot of it is the less formal debriefing with each other afterwards as we wrestle with it. We also get very buoyed by the, the winds and that helps to deal with the real palpable visceral lows. But yeah, some days it's very hard, but we also hopefully return to home environments that are supportive. And that has been a challenge through lockdown for some of our team members. Um, but um, I certainly benefit from a very supportive family when I come home. Um, Nurse EpiPen here. Um, Warwick, you wrote a fabulous article in The Age in early Jownings and some of the things that... I've got some figures here that are from the Royal Lifesaving National Database that we've had mm. the worst number of drownings in 21 years. There were uh, 60, uh, 61 people have drowned, of which 25 of those were under 15. Would you like to talk about drownings and what, what your article basically was saying? Yeah, well, thank you, Penny. And look, drownings is a great example of many injuries where we, we can rightly assert that drowning is preventable. It's a preventable cause of death and it's a preventable cause of injury. Then we must, if we, if, we, if we accept that assertion, even though it may prickle with us, even though it may rail against some of our cultural identity as Australians, and we think, well, what can, what can we do um, that can influence any moment to keep it on the safe side of risk and not on the danger side of risk? And the more practical, the more achievable these measures are, the more likely we are, one, to use them, and two, that they'll make a difference. So we talk about there being pillars of prevention of drowning. Um, and again, this is something that you'll see resonate through each of the sort of fact sheets you might come across. But the, 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 the number one um, is speaks to active adult supervision. And they're, sorry, constant active adult supervision. And each of those three words is very intentionally included. So constant 
reflects the fact that you cannot take your eyes off children for a moment. And that actually is sadly the exact statement that is made by families or parent givers who they say, but we only, we only took our eyes off them for a moment. Mm. And there's only so many times that you need to hear that, which is exactly once mm. before you think, well, I don't want to ever hear that again. Mm. I don't want any parent to say, I only took my eyes off them for a moment. And then you think, okay, well, what can we do to change that? We can say that it must be constant. And many parents would be, a, a, in their own honesty, would say, yes, I can understand that I can be present, mm. but if I'm distracted, uh, then that's not active supervision. So the, the, the mobile phone is a terrible distraction for us in so many different situations. And around the poolside or at the beach is no different. And look, it's a terrible thing that you could probably, those of you at the beach, go to the beach today and you could take note of the number of adults that are in and around their children who are actually staring at their phone and not taking eye on their children. Mm. So it needs to be active, um, constant active, and it needs to be adult. This is a, this is a grown-up moment to understand the, the severity of this, to make, make sense of its synthesis. These are all higher levels of analysis that we, we shouldn't be subordinating to, to younger children, particularly not siblings, and there's lots of evidence that says that is a bad idea. Um, we need to be restricting access, and that's pool fences are a great example of that. But there are a sad enough number of stories that tell us that pool fences are not enough, but that's a, it's an excellent concept. So Shut the Gate was a fantastic um, initiative uh, head by, headed by KidSafe with other partners, Raw Lifesaving and others, I, I think, involved, but each of them being involved. Um, learning CPR, um, uh, being one thing and, and, and increasing our awareness around water. So teaching our children to swim so that, that they are less likely to get into trouble and teaching them water awareness so they're less likely to step in, into and around danger. Mm. And on those four pillars, we can base a change to our ecosystem as Australians, which says we don't have to abandon our love for water. We just have to frame it now around this acceptance that drowning is preventable but how can we have all of the delights of that while still being safe? Well, actually, they're very achievable things. Now, learning CPR is perhaps, you know, an extra step, okay? So it's an example of something you'd have to go out of your way to do. Yeah. But keeping your children under five within constant reach of your arm all the time, that's very achievable. And keeping our children under 10 within constant eye line that's very achievable. And we could make such a difference if we just started there as Australians and let the rest trickle down, constant active adult supervision. And look, I, I'm not aware of the campaigns, but have there been uh, sort of uh, broad campaigns for that constant active adult supervision? Yeah, they have, and they've been pretty uh, – with campaigns, you need to be <laughs> constant <laughs> and active. <laughs> yeah. um, and we, 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 they have to be re reiterated, you know, mm. again and again. They, mm. they might be rebranded. They might be done by yep. KidSafe and then by Royal Lifesaving and then by a hospital and then by a community group. Matt Welsh and others were, were right behind this in the Shut the Gate campaign. Mm -hmm. It's lots and lots of really good stuff, and it's making a difference. Mm. We are impacting drowning numbers but they keep happening, yep. but they're not inevitable, they are preventable. Yep. Yeah, um, and one comment to that when you've got an adult supervision, that you delegate that person to do it. It's not, oh, let's go down to the beach, you know, 
you're on the kids, I'm having a coffee and a chat and we'll swap. But just the communication between adults is terribly important as well. And I personally have lived with a drowning, not in my family, but um, at a swimming pool and it's devastating. And that might be something Jess might want to talk about, the trauma of kids seeing a, a child mm, drown and mm, adults. Mm. But it's uh, you rang all the bells for me in your article and I can't support you enough and your messaging is brilliant. And I love this acronym, the Your Four Pillars. Really Thanks. good work. Thanks, Penny. Yeah, I think that that delegated adult needs to be swapped around, though. I think you can't just take the most yeah. neurotic member of the adult party and make them responsible <laughs> for all the children. Well, that would be me. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so share the responsibility. Yeah. It's everyone's yeah. day to enjoy. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Warwick. We're going to ask you to hang around if you've got time because coming up, we'll be speaking... Uh, with Jessica, your colleague from the Royal Children's Hospital, who will tell us about the social work and psychological implications of working with kids and families who have been through a significant trauma. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Jessica Windridge is a senior social worker who works with the trauma team. And <clears throat> just during the break, we had a beautiful example of how Jessica's eyes and ears were everywhere, looking after the team, looking after members of our team, after we were talking about traumatic incidents. So uh, welcome, Jessica. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Um, Whereabouts are you down the coast? Are you interstate? Or are you? No, I've, I've just come back from Wilson's Prom actually, which was absolutely beautiful. Um, and uh, Warwick's points about uh, safety around water and, mm. and, and active and constant supervision sure rang a bell. Mm. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm now back in uh, inner Melbourne and, and working a shift back at the hospital tonight. Tonight? Oh, so you do overnights mm. as well? Correct, yes. Yeah, yeah. My role is um, outside <coughs> business hours. So. Um, oh. Anything that sort of can't wait uh, for a social work intervention until the next business day, right. uh, that's where we've got social workers on site um, outside business hours to attend to um, urgent social work issues. So on site, so do you actually sleep at the hospital or do you get called in? Uh, well, so we do finish. Um, we are allowed to sleep, uh, sleep in our own beds. So <laughs> when, I, when I say it's outside business hours, it's pretty much outside business hours uh, that we're on site, um, except between 12 and 8, and then there's an on-call service. So, uh, you know, a social worker will be contacted um, to be brought in if, if that's required. Right. So what sort of things would you get called in to, to do and to see? Yeah, so... Um, you know, something such as um, a significant trauma um, or, um, you know, if, if there's uh, any kind of bereavement work that's required um, at the hospital uh, would be something that, that we'd be called in for, um, you know, particularly when um, understandably there's a lot of um, family distress around that um, and so sitting with families during that, that time of um, great uncertainty. Um. And you've been doing this for over a decade, I read in your bio. What attracted, yeah, well, what attracted look, you to it? I mean, that's, it's a pretty <laughs> gruelling work. No? Um, I, I think um, how I uh, sort of first knew about social work was as a teenager, um, 
my uh, grandmother was uh, English was a second language, and she also had a trackie. So my mum a tracheostomy, so era. so she couldn't talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's right. So um, she needed, although um, cognitively she was completely with it mm. um, to communicate, she needed um, somebody with her, and so that was primarily my mother. And uh, she had a short stay in hospital, and the social worker organised some respite. Um, just short-term respite, which enabled my mum to, we could go on a family holiday. So that was when I was about 16. Mm -hmm. And that was a very impactful kind of memory that I have. And and I think that's what attracted me to social work. Mm. I also just love working in hospitals as well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm not very good around blood and gore, unfortunately. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of found a role that that I could be uh, have a purpose within a, in in a hospital yeah. uh, that didn't involve bodily fluids. <laughs> um, both my children have had stints at the Royal Children's Hospital, so I understand what it's like to be a parent going into ED and being um, stressed by the environment. But I, I neither of them have had major trauma or burns or anything. So could you um, help me understand what happens when parents come in? and they don't want to leave their child and they have to trust the doctors and the nurses and they've got, you know, blood and bones broken and they're screaming out. And who helps the parents remove away from their children and supports them in that? What, what, what's the dynamic that occurs there? Sure. So parents might come into the hospital in all sorts of ways. So say, for instance, if it's a um, air ambulance, helicopter ambulance transfer, um, then there might may be a parent on board with them who arrives with them um, or an air, you know a road ambulance, the parent may be with them at the time. Sometimes it may be the case that um, they come separately. Sometimes it might be that the parent is involved in that particular um, you know, uh, incident as well. And so they might be taking, taken off to get medical care themselves. In that case, then we usually have um, other family who pretty quickly um, arrive to the hospital and, and, um, and are taken through. Um, we don't generally try to remove a parent from a child. Um, if, if that parent, um, you know, is comfortable to be in that space, um, that can often be very reassuring um, for the child if, if, if they're aware of it. Um, if perhaps then they're not conscious, um, it, it's still, you know, if the parent is comfortable, then we, we would like to keep them there um, with the child. Um, it's also good, I think, for, for parents sometimes to know um, just, you know, all the work that, that is being done um, for their child um, at that time. So, uh, yes, if they're comfortable, then we do do try and, and keep them there. And, and part of my role too is sometimes just standing with that, that family member and just providing education around the clinical environment because mm. it can look very, very scary. Um, so there might, you know, there might be dozens of people in that room with that child. And so it's explaining that, um, you know, the reason that there's so many people in here is we want to avoid mistakes. So every person has a role mm. um, in this room. Um, it does look very scary and, and, and just um, explaining who is doing what and what it all means. Wonderful work, Jess. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences on our show. I suppose picking up on something we were discussing before about active supervision of the parents or, or an adult um, when, a, when a child has a drowning incident, um, I'm wondering um, if you're able to help with uh, a parent potentially feeling guilty that they maybe took their eyes off the child. I imagine their initial reaction is one of shock, but then I would think the guilt would come in. And I'm wondering what you 
would say to a parent to help them with that feeling? Yeah, it, you know, it's, um, I think everybody in a room when um, a parent will be expressing guilt or, or regret about a situation, every person in that room understands, um, you know, that they're, but for the grace of God, I go, um, mm. you know, none of us are, are perfect. And mm. everybody's had moments where, you know, um, they, they wish they could change in their parenting at, at some point. Um, you know, I uh, recently worked with a drowning where a mother was um, holding her nephew who was a similar age. And so she felt, I think because of that, she thought she had her child in her arms. She just kind of had a, a, a lapse of concentration. Um, and, and I think that's really relatable. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't. I don't think um, any anybody in the room is is there to to cause blame at all. And and um, and and we we know that in the way that no, nobody plans to be in that situation. Um, so uh, just having a, a real empathy for that. Um, and families, you know, they always respond in the best way they possibly can at the time. So you know, it's it's about well, once they realise that their child needs care how that's administered and and um you know they, they usually respond to their child's needs as soon as they realize do you know as you're talking jessica it brings to mind i've got social worker friends close friends and i just kept thinking there's something wrong with the name social worker because it doesn't convey what you actually do social worker to me seems like it's something social but it's much more emotional um i mean can you can you speak to that about you know, what it is you actually do in the room with people? I mean, you said you sort of try and disabuse people of guilt or, or blame or, and try and make it relatable. What kind of foundation, what kind of sort of, I don't know, theoretical foundation do you use to do that? You know, do you, do you, do you pick some kind of construct and say, well, I'm going to use, I'm going to draw on, I don't know, Bowlby or Freud or, or something like that? Or do you just kind of go, I'm just going to talk about what I'm feeling and what I'm sensing? Yeah, I, I, I don't think you can prescribe it mm-hmm. too much, Dr. Yeah. Mel. Um, I think every family's needs are different and so your work has to be crafted yeah. according to that. Um, so, yes, of course, um, we have sort of theories and, and knowledge that we do draw upon and, and general ones, but when we're talking about, um, you know, the actual point of the trauma, it, it's about, um, you know, crafting that work to what the, the family needs at the time and, and that's very different each and every time. Sometimes I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not an active role because there might be a, a family member who's better suited to supporting um, those parents or, or that loved one or there might be, you know, there might be a bedside nurse that, that yeah. they've connected with um, who can, who's sort of able to um, sit with them during that time um, and so then it's more about supporting that staff member. Right, so you read the room and, and see what's going Correct. on. And if somebody else is providing the sort of care that the family needs, you can kind of just sort of edge out a bit and let them take care of it. That, that's pretty unusual, I would say, for... I mean, it's a, it's a great thing, but it's, it's an unusual uh, positive quality to have as a professional to actually say, well, hang on. I'm not needed right now. You know, we as professionals, are very we we you know we often think, oh, we we're needed everywhere. We've got to do everything. So, it's a pretty special talent. Um, G Spot, you uh, had a question. Thanks so much, Dr. Mal. Um, Jess, I, I love what you're describing, uh, what you do in terms of the hospital setting. But as you and I 
both probably know that's sometimes the start of someone's trauma processing or trauma journey. And so what do you do to help people who you know are going to need ongoing support after this critical event within the hospital setting? Yeah, right. So um, during a hospital stay, there'll be a social worker allocated. So while I'm, I might work with the family um, when they initially come into the hospital or, or, or during their early days of the admission, um, there will be ongoing social work while they're admitted. Um, following, you know, following that um, outside of the hospital, there is, um, you know, counselling supports, uh, which we can guide families to uh, link in with and connect with um, to, um, you know, to, to get that ongoing support. So most easily it, it can be through a GP and accessing, um, you know, a mental health care plan. Um, but, you know, there's also organisations, there's the Australian Centre for Grief and Bereavement, mm-hmm. um, Road Trauma Support Services, um, Red Nose actually provide mm-hmm. bereavement support whenever a child under 18 has um, has died suddenly. Mm-hmm. And how do you look after yourself? I and mean, we would heard about Warwick, but how do you look after yourself? Yeah, I don't, it, it's ongoing. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm here still. Um, I still love my work. I wouldn't be anywhere else. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it's something that I'm, you know, I'm always talking about with my colleagues, um, and, and, you know, how can we do it better? Because I think it it does leave an impression on you. Um, I'm definitely the anxious one at down at the beach, or if we go on a camping (laughs) trip and and there's lots of other relaxed parents around, um, I feel like I'm sort of the anxious meerkat at the top. Um, uh, so, you know, it, 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 it does, um, uh, you know, it, it's something that you, you're constantly learning how to manage it and, and different things work in different ways. But as Warwick said, being part of a supportive team is really important and, and, and the team is really useful. Um, you know, sometimes that's through um, structured debriefs that we're provided with. Sometimes it's just you might meet the, you know, one of the, one of the team in the corridor um, a few weeks later and you get to talk about it and something about something that they share helps you a lot all the way that you're able to share with them. Do you know, it's, um, it's so often, sorry uh, to interrupt you, um, it's so often those corridor chats, those impromptu chats which um, aren't prescribed um, that are just so beneficial to people. You just meet at the right time, you're talking about, you're thinking about the right things and you just debrief there and, it, you know, it wasn't um, set up, it just happened doesn't it? That, that's so often the way in hospitals. Thank you so much, Jessica. We've got to get you back on the show. I mean, you do have the most beautiful manner in the way that yeah. you talk. I can just, I'm feeling very kind of, I don't know, um, relaxed, I guess is the Supported. word. Supported. Support. Thank you. Um, EpiPen, just, uh, just hearing you chat. Um, so thank you so much and for the excellent, excellent work you do. And gee, everybody who works at the Children's loves the place and they never want to leave. So um, good on you, Jessica. Thank you so much also to Associate Professor Warwick Teague for talking with us about trauma and burns and great stuff and great resources, especially around uh, supervising kids and swimming. If, uh, look, the show has brought up any issues for you, there is Lifeline, which is on the number 131114. There are also the resources that uh, Warwick mentioned and EpiPen were putting that up on our on our socials. Um, you've been listening to Radiotherapy. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.